Let's ask for help this morning. God, as we reflect this time of year on your coming, as we reflect on the joy of angels singing, the realities of you entering into human history to save us, we pray, Lord, soften our hearts to be quick to repent. Lord, allow us not to um, enter into this text or this time together this morning with um, eyes that are unwilling to see the ways in which uh, we have held you off, the ways uh, in which we've put things other than you on the throne. Soften our hearts to, to our own repentance, Lord, and uh, bring conviction and restoration and renewal, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the beautiful things about Advent is that as we wait for something, we experience an intensification of our longing for it. So, right, like we talked about the last two weeks already, there's a, there's a layer of in, in, intensification of our longing that happens when we realize our need for something, right? Like, in fact, you can't actually long for something. You won't truly long for it. You won't truly desire it if you don't recognize your needs. So we've, we've looked at that the last couple of weeks in different ways. But another layer of that intensification that magnifies the intensity of our longing is then found in the waiting for it. So it's like that running illustration that I've used for the last couple of weeks related to knowing how badly you need something, not just want something, but actually need something, knowing knowing how badly you need it, and then it finally arrives. The coming, how overjoyed you are at its coming, how overjoyed you are at its advent or arrival. But now think about this morning, knowing how badly you desperately need something, and you're still waiting for it to come, okay? You're waiting for it. Those two things together increase our longing even more. They increase our longing for Christ. We, we know we need Him desperately. He's given Himself to us at the cross. By His resurrection, we're granted new life. And yet on this side of eternity, we wait. We wait for His union with us to be perfected. We know how badly we need Him to come, right? I mean, we, we look around in this world and we see all the ways in which it's broken. All the ways in which... There's just pain and heartache. We, we see the ways in which we contribute to that. We see pain in our own hearts, ways in which we are broken. And so we cry out, how long, O oh Lord? We, we cry out, come Lord Jesus, into the midst of this brokenness. Every time there's a tragedy, every time there's, uh, we're in the midst of our own personal pain, we cry out, come Lord Jesus. We know how desperate our circumstances are for Christ to finally come and consummate His kingdom but we're waiting for it. You know, evangelists throughout Christian history have have really understood well how how this understanding of our our recognition of our neediness and this waiting actually work together in their own expositions of the gospel. So, for instance, when George Whitfield would preach at revivals during the time of the Great Awakening, the story is told that he preached law, law, and more law, and more law during the first part, in fact, the largest part of these evangelistic sermons that he would give, some of which would last for hours. In other words, he would preach the holiness of a mighty God and how if we are truly going to be in relationship to this holy God, we have to be holy too. 
Like, here's the standard of, of an Almighty God, and if we don't meet that standard, then what we deserve is judgment. And so he would preach law and what people deserve from the law, and then he would preach more law and more law. And then he would just bring in a, just a touch of grace, and then more law and more law until the people around him were just weeping, recognizing what they deserved, and not seeing how they could possibly pull themselves out of it like like that, that window, you know, of opportunity, that doorway of like me fixing myself, me saving myself, it was closed forever to them. They realized it. And so he would, he would make them sit with this reality of law and judgment until they were leaned forward in their chair or even on their knees with their face in their hands. He'd make them see both that need and he'd make them wait to hear the good news. But this condemnation, alongside of waiting for him to possibly bring a word of hope, would have people longing for an answer. There'd be an intensification of longing. Longing for hope, longing for something to rescue them. And then, only then, would he begin expounding the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at that point, he'd hold out a distinction before them. A distinction was made. Would their longing for this gospel result in a longing for Jesus? A longing for Christ over and above all things in their lives. A deep trust in Him to do what they could never do for themselves. A desire for Jesus. that The idea that He satisfies above everything else. A desire for Him above all things. Above everything. Or would they continue to long for, trust, and desire other things? Would they, would they put other things on the throne where God should be? Or would they give Him His rightful place by faith in Jesus Christ? This is what he would hold out to him, hold out to them. And the waiting to hear this gospel in the midst of hearing so much law and law and having to wait through the midst of that, that would intensify the significance of this distinction, this question that he would pose for them. But what these people at Whitfield Sermons would experience for a couple of hours, God's people throughout the Old Testament experienced for all of their history until the moment that Jesus Christ finally came into the world. They experienced an entire history. They experienced, lived out what, West, what Whitfield and Wesley were talking about during the Great Awakening. Recognizing that they couldn't live up to God's standard for them over and over and over again. Experiencing failure after failure after failure and following God's law. And then crying out for Him over and over again to send the one who would come and bring an end to the curse. So the Old Testament really ends with the prophet's crying out to and along with God's people over and over again that refrain that we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, right? And then finally, after all this crying out, as we even talk about in our own family, when we do Advent together each night, the way that we frame it is like, the prophets cry out, the prophets cry out, O come, O come, Emmanuel. All this crying out, it culminates, and then all of a sudden when we're at the pinnacle of that, there was finally... Silence. Immediately after these prophets, along with God's people, had called out for their rescuer, there was 400 years of silence. And then, only after that moment of silence, do we see finally God entering into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. And we see something very similar taking shape in Revelation, in chapters 8 and 9. This morning, that was a, that was a long text, right, that Maria just read. Thank you, Maria, for doing that. Um, 
And obviously there's a lot of ground to cover, but just by way of reminder, the primary approach to preaching that I've decided to take here really generally at Gospel Life, but specifically with Revelation, as it relates to making our way through larger books of the Bible, is to take things unit by unit. And the reason that we're doing that is so that we can see together the main point, make our primary focus as we come together, the main point that the author is making, rather than trying to piece that main point together verse by verse. This isn't the only way you can do it. Multiple ways you can do it. The disadvantage to the way that we're approaching this text is that we won't have time to unpack all of the details, and some of them are are significant. So I encourage you, if you're interested, pick up one of the commentaries on my reading list. I recommend Schreiner. His ESV commentary is very good, and it'll give you enough depth in each verse, and yet it's very doable to to make something of a daily... um, a daily devotional. But the advantage to the approach that we're taking is actually that we don't get so focused on some of the details that we get distracted from the main point rather than seeing how those details actually reinforce the main point. And I I would argue that I think that's oftentimes how we've approached Revelation in ways that hasn't been helpful. Like we become so focused on a number or we become so fo- overly focused on one particular symbol and reading into that symbol that we kind of divorce it from the context and the overarching purpose. So I think for our purposes in this book, it will be helpful for us to step back and really see the point the author's trying to make. And this morning's text really bears this out because as we look into this next section of Revelation, we come to see that chapters 8 and 9 really are, they, they function as one unit. And as such, the author wants our focus to be Not on any of the particular details as such, but on what God is about to do in this text after this moment of waiting and silence in order to continue to usher in His consummated kingdom. In other words, this morning, here's what we'll find. We see four four scenes from John's vision. Four scenes from these visions that are unfolding in the text that make sense of how God has worked in the world, how God is working in the world, and how He will work moving forward to ultimately bring justice and vindication to the people of God. So first the text shows us, if you're going to take notes, and I'll, have, I'll elaborate on this more, but first we're going to see the silence of heaven awaiting what God is about to do. Next we, we see in this, in this sequence the prayers of God's people that have undoubtedly been prayed throughout the centuries as God's people cry out for Him to come, for Him to do justice Then we see the answer of God to those prayers that God hears and answers. And then finally, how does the world respond? We see the the response of the world to God's answer. So the silence of heaven, the prayers of God's people, the answer of God, and the response of the world. And as the story progresses, we'll come to see more and more both how in our waiting and in our recognition of our need, we we should experience an intensification of our longing to see God do what only He can do. And these three parts of the narrative should also lead us to ask, look, if I'm, if I'm not longing for God, if, if my longing belongs to some other thing rather than to Him, will I repent? Will I turn away from that? Will I smash that idol and put God on His throne? This text uniquely has to do with the outcome of, of idolatry in the human heart. And that's significant because it was significant for a first century audience. John's writing this to a group of people who live in a very pagan world in which um, 
you can't go anywhere without seeing the symbols of the gods, right? But it's also unique to a 21st century context because as John Calvin said, across the, the centuries, the human heart is a factory of idols. It just makes things constantly. The human heart is constantly desiring things above God and we constantly have to see what we're desiring over and above God and and put that to death. So this text uniquely has to do with the outcome of idolatry in the human heart. It uniquely poses questions related to repentance. Let's look at the first part of the narrative together. Verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Okay, stop there. So... Here John sees the same lamb, the only one that was found worthy to open the seals of the scroll and and make known what God was about to do to set things in motion. And here he's finally opening the seven seals. And if you remember, and, and, and again I'll say, if you miss a Sunday in Revelation, it will be useful for you to go back and listen to make sense of what Uh, we're talking about as we move forward. But in some ways, as we talked about before, the contents of the scroll was revealed. Some of the contents were revealed after each seal was broken. So a seal was broken, a little bit of the contents were revealed, another seal broken, a little bit more was revealed. But the idea here is, now the the seventh seal is broken, the scroll can be fully opened, fully revealed. And upon breaking that seventh seal, it says that there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now there's a lot of commentary out there related to the meaning of the silence, if you have questions related to what some people have said about it, you can certainly stay afterward for the Q&A and ask. But regardless of the various views on the silence, one thing that all the views seem to have in common here is that it's hard to deny the reality that this is intended by John, by Christ as he shows John this vision. It's intended as a dramatic pause in the drama of John's vision. Remember, Revelation is a drama unfolding before us. And so imagine watching a movie in which it really seems to be reaching something of a conclusion or an ending point, and, and right where it kind of gets to the pinnacle of the movie, right where it's like, I'm not quite sure how it's going to end, but it seems like we're getting there. It seems like we've arrived. We see silence. We experience silence. It's, that's what it feels like in verse 1. This is a drama unfolding, and this is a dramatic pause in the story, but when we see what comes after this silence, we begin to understand why this is so dramatic. Why it's so significant. Because what comes next will be God's answer to the prayers of the saints in judging those who dwell upon the earth. And if you remember earth dwellers in Revelation, anytime you see that, earth dwellers, those who dwell upon the earth, every time John says that in Revelation, he's talking about those who have set themselves against God as his enemy. Those who want nothing to do with the Creator. God, those to whom he's given much time to repent, opportunity to repent. But the time has now come to an end. And just like um, you'll often have a quiet before the storm, like a storm is about to roll in, a hurricane is about to roll in, and there'll be this kind of almost eerie quiet that comes upon the place where the storm is about to to hit. You have here this first scene. We have the silence of heaven in reverent anticipation. The silence of heaven in reverent anticipation for what's about to take place. This is like, you know how when you you observe a moment of silence for something that happened previously? This is a moment of silence for something that's about to happen. It speaks to the seriousness, the degree of seriousness of what's about to unfold so that a reverent silence takes place in the heavens. 
It's not entirely dissimilar to the, the people of God crying out over and over again for His Savior to come and then experience silence from heaven prior to the arrival of God at Advent. The arrival of Christ. Well, another arrival of God's interaction in the world is about to take place, but this time, as we'll see in judgment and what precedes it, is silence. And we see that here because we move from the silence of heaven in reverent anticipation, secondly, if you're taking notes, to the, the prayers of God's people in hopeful expectation. The prayers of God's people in hopeful expectation. Verses 2-5, through five, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, And seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it upon, threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. A couple of things here to observe, okay? First of all, following the first six seals, when the seals were broken and these seal judgments were happening, and then an interlude after those six seals that focused on the complete people of God, this large multitude that we saw. Following that, uh, here we see, now in chapter Eight, a section that serves both as an end to those seal judgments and the beginning of what's known as the trumpet judgments. So now, just like the seals being broken with each one had a corresponding judgment or something to do with judgment, now we see these trumpet blasts, each one having to do with judgment as well. And um, so it serves as an end of the seals, the beginning of the, the trumpets. Now in terms of how the seven seals and seven trump- trumpets function together, I said that we'd, the more we go, the more will be revealed to us. Um, let's look at a few options. Some say that the seals are preliminary judgments and that the trumpets come after them. So usually what people say who hold this view is that this is entirely future. So the, the seven seals that are yet to come happen in the f- first part of this seven-year period that's coming in the future. And then, so the, but these are preliminary judgments. They're almost like birth pangs. And then after this comes the trumpets sequentially, and then after them comes the bowls, so that this is happening in chronological order. Some say that the seals and the trumpets mirror one another, right? That they provide something of a retelling of the same judgments. So, you know, you had these seven seal judgments, and now John is finding a different way to express the same reality, that he's kind of retelling them so that you could actually position them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and it's talking about the same thing. Others say that the last seal sort of becomes the trumpets. The trumpets um, serve as one of the seals, right? So we'll have more to work with as the book continues, but for now, I'll just reiterate what I said a couple of weeks ago. Maybe this is the easy way out, but I honestly, the more I wrestle with the text, the more this is true for me. Uh, I'll reiterate what I said a couple of weeks ago, what Grant Osborne argues for so well in his own commentary on Revelation in saying that, listen to me now, Revelation has no neat organizational plan. I'm sorry, but it doesn't. It's extremely difficult from my perspective to foist such a plan upon the text. And in my opinion, that's exactly what we're doing when we try to like put some structure to it. We foist it upon the text to try to make it fit some kind of an outside structure or viewpoint. It's like, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but occasionally 
I find a lid in the Tupperware drawer that just, I have a hard time matching with a container. Now, here's the thing that usually happens with me. I'll pull the lid out from the drawer, and I have a theory immediately of what container this goes with. I'm pretty certain that I know. So then I take that container out of the drawer, and you know how it's, you get that satisfying snap on the one side? It's like, pop. It's like, oh, yeah, this is the one. And then you go to snap the other side, and what happens? The side you just snapped pops right off. To the point where it's like, no, I know this is the one. The dishwasher must have warped it. And so you're kind of like putting all your weight on it, you know, trying to get this thing to snap. Um, and it usually doesn't end well when you try to do that because all the contents come pouring out when somebody grabs it out of the fridge and, you know, the lid pops off. All right. Um, I think the structure of the apocalyptic literature and symbolism in Revelation is a lot like that lid. It, it often doesn't really fit so nicely with any of our theories And so what we need to do is let the text speak for itself if we're going to find the right fit, if we're going to find the right structure. But at least one thing, and the structure is not clear immediately, but but at least one thing is clear this morning. The author's focus is less, I think, on the structure of how these things fit together in terms of seal and trumpet. There's a a comfortableness on on the part of the author, on the part of the expression of this vision, with there being some unknowns here. So it's less, I think, on the structure of how they fit, less on whether or not this is a chronological retelling of events, uh, a chronological series of events, or a retelling of the same events. He's actually more focused on the source of the judgments. Let me explain what I mean. In other words, I think it's probably both. Now I realize I say that a lot in Revelation to the point where it probably seems like a cop-out. You know, that things, things are probably both referring to past events, and events that are yet to come, right? I I think sometimes we think in terms of a false dichotomy with Revelation that we kind of make for ourselves where we think we have to make a clear choice between a past event or a present event or a future event when that kind of choice isn't necessary. And the same is probably true here. That is to say, I think there probably is almost certainly some retelling of the same events that took place in the seal judgments. I have a really hard time denying it, actually, as I look at the seal judgments in comparison to the trumpets in comparison to the bulls. And some of it, I would argue, actually can't be chronological because on my reading, you get to the sixth seal and what happens? The sky rolls back like a scroll. It's the eschaton. It's the end of days. It's the day of the Lord. It's the very end. So if that's the end, we can't be moving forward chronologically. There is something of a retelling. There's there's an overlap. However... We do see here, especially in the context, I think, some new things that probably pertain in a very specific way to future events, future judgments. And these things probably do follow after the seals in a chronological kind of way. In other words, you look at the, you know, you look at the the seals and you see that a quarter of things are burned up. Then you look at the trumpets and a third of the things are burned up. Then you look at the bowls and everything's burned up. And so you're moving forward on this trajectory that seems to be moving us to, to the end, to the very end. So I do think some of this is chronological. It's probably both. And I think that shows how the intention here isn't really on the structure as much as the perspective from which it's told. What's the big difference between the seals and the trumpets, the perspective of the seals versus the trumpets. The seals appear to be told from the perspective of earthly history. Four horsemen marching out, representing military conquest, civil unrest, famine, and death. They seem to be told from the perspective of 
human depravity, I mean, even the focus on God's people standing before the throne, again, from an earthly standpoint, asking how long, Lord, are you going to allow this to continue with the fifth seal? Okay, so it's from an earthly perspective, and yet here in the trumpets, as we start in verses 2 through 5, and then as we go into the judgments themselves, we see that they're told from the perspective of the throne. They're told from a heavenly perspective. Even the judgments themselves are operating on like this spiritual plane that we don't see, that we don't actually, oftentimes we'll even deny exists because it's being told from a completely different vantage point. And it's from that perspective, it's from that vantage point that we see the prayer of God's people in hopeful anticipation because what happens here is John sees the seven angels standing before God, seven trumpets given to them, But then another angel comes and stands before the altar with a golden censer. Okay, and the text says that he's given much incense to offer up to God with the prayers of the saints. This is a little bit of a tricky verse that can be interpreted, sorry, it can be translated actually a couple of different ways from Greek to English. So one of the ways that you can translate it is the way that we often see it, that the angel's given much incense together with the prayers of the saints, as though the incense and the prayers of the saints are two different things that are being offered up before the Lord. That is possible. It translates that way. But another way you can translate it perfectly fine is to say that he was given much incense. That is the prayers of the saints. The incense is a symbol for the prayers that are going up from God's people before God. Both are actually fine translations. But the context is how we make these kinds of decisions. And I think in this, the context here suggests the incense that is being burned. That which is going up before the Lord, the aroma that's pleasing to him, comes from the prayers of the saints. comes from the people of God. This crying out that we already read about in chapter 6 when the fifth seal was opened. And under the altar, the souls of those who've been slain for the word of God cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? How long, O Lord? This crying out from God's people throughout the ages, how long, O Lord, will you allow evil to abide in this world unchecked? That's going up over and over again before the throne, the the smoke of the incense. That is the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the, the Lord answers. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, flung it down upon the earth to mark the beginning of God's answer. And in these images we see this, before we get to God's answer, in these images we see the significance of the prayer of God's people. The significance of prayer in appealing to God for His justice to come. The prayers of God's people in appealing to God for the end, for His coming, for His kingdom to come. Jesus taught us to pray that way. Right? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Come, Lord Jesus. I think sometimes we can cry out so much in our own spirit. You know, when, we're, when we just live in such a, a global world in which what happens on all ends of the world gets, gets um, immediately published to our news feeds on social media within an instant. And we can be overwhelmed with grief and with sadness with what's going on in the world around us. From tornado devastation in the United States to something that happens across the, uh, the world and other nations, right? Bombs that are going off, wars that are happening, people who are being killed, right? And so we, we, uh, we cry, civil unrest, and so we cry out, 
how long, O oh Lord? Our hearts get weary. And we say, how long? Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. I think it can be really easy to say that over and over again until what it feels like is that our prayers are falling on the silence of heaven rather than going up before the Lord in an aroma that's pleasing for him, to him and in a way that he eventually answers. But let me encourage you this morning, we need to be a people of prayer because our prayers do go up before the throne of God. He does hear them. He does answer. He will come again. He will bring justice to bear on a broken world. He will bring renewal and restoration. He will surely do it. And we can cry out to him in hopeful anticipation. We can participate with God in, what, in the justice that is to come through our prayers and through our crying out to him. And we should do that as a church, gospel life. We should be a people of prayer. Uh, Sundays at 9.30 before service. We want to be in the habit of praying here together before the service. Once a month, together as a church family, we have a time of prayer together. I invite you um, to pay attention to when those things are announced and come and pray with us and cry out. The prayers of God's people are, are so significant and important, and He hears and He will answer. And it's here that we move forward from those prayers from God's people in hopeful anticipation of what He's going to do to now um, the answer of God in divine retribution. So the prayers of God... From, uh, from God's people in hopeful anticipation. Now the answer of God to those prayers in divine retribution. The answer to the crying out to the Lord for His justice to come. God, bring your justice is found in His judgment upon sin. And this is something of a repeated saying that we have at Gospel Life because we see it so often in Scripture. But everybody right now wants to talk about justice and nobody wants to talk about the justice of God again the justice of a holy God against human sin. Like, we all want to cry out for justice, and yet Revelation would say, do you know what you're asking? Verse 6, Now the, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. So in rapid su succession now, just like with the structure of the seals, there's sort of like a four plus two plus one, so like the first four come in rapid fire, the next two are explained a little bit more slowly. Then there's an interlude, and then the final one, it's exactly the same, right? So the first four, just like the four horsemen, the first four trumpets are blown with rapid succession. The first one brings hail and fire, if you look to the text, mixed with blood, thrown to the earth. Third of the earth is burned up, third of the trees are burned up, all green grass is burned up. The second trumpet blows, something like a great mountain burning with fire thrown into the sea, becomes like blood, the sea becomes like blood. Third of the living creature in the sea die. Third of the ships are destroyed. Third trumpet brings a great star falling from heaven, falls on now fresh water sources. So, you know, this great mountain was thrown into the sea. This is like water that you aren't able to drink. But now, like the rivers and streams have this star that falls upon it. The streams and rivers, be what, what was fresh becomes bitter. Wormwood is like um, this plant that has this like very bitter extract. So the author is giving some, and, and the vision itself gives its hearers some like actual taste to like consider with the symbolism here of like, oh, that which was fresh is now bitter. That which gave life now gives death. A lot of people die from drinking this bitter water. <clears throat> and the fourth, uh, fourth trumpet strikes a third of the sun, third of the moon, third of the stars, darkens the night, brings darkness, darkness, darkness. Okay. So what do we have to say about these initial judgments, these initial four judgments, and how, you know, it moves us forward? Well, we see this constant repetition of numbers again, which is what we would expect in apocalyptic literature. One-third, 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 one-third. It's repeated like 15 times here in this section alone. And on the one hand, 
I think with that repetition of the book of Revelation in this specific genre, what we find is symbolism with these numbers. That's, that's how I read this. In other words, I think it's very difficult to require of a text like this a literal framework where one-third of all these happening, all these things are actually burning up or like approximately one-third are actually burning up or turning to blood or being targeted. I, I think this is symbolic. But the question is, what's it symbolic for? And what I would respond with is, it's symb- I think it's symbolic for horrific judgment. So it's like, just because I'm saying it's symbolic doesn't mean I'm saying it's not going to happen, right? I think that's kind of the misnomer. The idea is, well, people say it's symbolic to kind of minimize this and make it better. No, 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 no. This is symbolic for something horrible that's going to happen. This language is being expressed in this way for us to realize how terrifying it is. In other words, even though I I think this isn't literally saying that one-third of the sun will fail and go dark, because that wouldn't just result in darkness, that would result in the death of everything. Like, you wouldn't need any of the other seals. Everything would die, right? So just because I don't, I don't think it's literally saying that, um, it doesn't mean the symbolism isn't serious. It's a number that signifies that many people on the earth have been and will be continually directly affected by these judgments, that these are major judgments upon those who've rejected Christ and they are truly unrelenting. Another thing that can be said is that when we start to see the ways in which these judgments actually mirror the plagues of Egypt, something kind of striking stands out in terms of its meaning. So John, in expressing what he's seen, you start to see that he's absolutely 100% steeped in Old Testament biblical theology. Like John understands his Old Testament. He's trying to... To, to express what he has seen in ways that his readers will understand on the basis of what they've read in the Old Testament text. And here we certainly see that to be the case. You have water turning into blood, turning undrinkable, the sky turning dark, hail and fire from the sky. And, and this points them back to, in a very clear kind of way, the Exodus. And we need to remember that as, as Osborne has pointed out, the plagues of Egypt has like a multi-layered purpose here. There's actually three purposes. To prove the sovereign presence of the power of Yahweh to the people who experienced it. So the power of God, the power of Yahweh, He is powerful. Number two, to show the powerlessness of the Egyptian gods. So God is powerful. The false gods are not powerful because they don't exist. And the degree to which the demonic realm is behind those things, as we'll actually see together, they have no power over God. God is in control of everything. So God is powerful. These false gods of Egypt are not. And, and also to show, that, to show Pharaoh, who was a god to the Egyptians, that he could not win. And that he would not win. And to show everyone, to show the nations, that despite his power and might, Pharaoh, this one that was believed to be God, he would not win. And in the same way, we see something similar happening here in which the trumpets demonstrate The sovereign power of God over everything. The sovereign power of God in judgment, right? That He is powerful. The powerlessness of all other gods, because they're not really gods to the degree to which there's something demonic going on, He's powerful over them. And to show that in the first century, though the emperor at the time was also believed to be God by the Roman imperial cult, He would not win. It's a signal to actually all of human history that false gods 
the gods of our hearts, the desires of our hearts that take the place of God, along with chariots, people in positions of power who stand against the Lord, they will not win. It's a signal, actually, that Satan himself will not win. We see that in chapter 9, verse 11, when it talks about, I, I, I think this Abaddon character, this Apollyon, is, we have good reason to believe this is Satan himself. This text is telling us Satan will not win. The God in the end will be victorious. And these trumpets now intensify. So we see them intensify. The last three will actually be in the form of three woes preceded by an eagle that cries out with this loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell upon the earth and the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So these last three trumpets are these three woes. And with these woes comes what appears to be a demonic horde. Right? So if, if you look into the Old Testament, again, John is just steeped in Old Testament biblical theology. And if you look in the Old Testament, in places like Joel, there's this imagery of the day of the Lord that is to come. A lot of the imagery that Joel uses is like locusts, the judgment of locusts that comes and like eats away at everything. And now John like borrows this imagery of the day of the Lord and this judgment of locusts, right? Except like it's on steroids for him because it's the, these locusts come directly from the very pit of hell. Most likely what we're looking at are demons who end up turning on the very people that they deceived into following them and end up torturing those who worshipped them. And I want you to think about that imagery. Like, we think that we can desire other things and everything's, you know, put something else on the throne of our lives and everything's fine. But what we find here is that the things that these people worshipped actually destroyed them. It's important to point out in all of this, God is in control. He, he's in control. He's not... Right? Like, John's not painting a picture of this demonic horde being released from the pit and God up in heaven, like, no! How's this happening? No, God's actually in control. He's giving people over to what they want. This is like what Romans chapter, chapter 1 talks about that God gave people over in their sinful desires. He's just giving people over, He's giving people what they want. You wanted to worship demons? You wanted to worship things that were false? You wanted to worship things that brought you pain and devastation despite the fact that in my forbearance I offered you so much time to repent? Well, here you go. This is what that looks like. Here are your gods. As one commentator said, by exhausting every attempt to bring the nations to a better mind, God demonstrates His sovereignty, vindicates His holiness, and justifies His final sentence of doom. These people, think about this imagery. They're stung by the sting of these demons like scorpions, but they don't die. Like they go on living, though inwardly they long for death. Like this, this picture is terrifying. It's meant to describe the reality of what happens when we de-God God, when we put ourselves and other things on the throne. It's what happens to those who do not repent. I mean, like it's a picture of a lack of repentance. The second woe just brings to completion what the first one began. The demonic cavalry from this horde that's released brings death and destruction in its wake. A third of humanity is killed by this, these demonic riders. So this section of Scripture started with the silence of heaven in reverent anticipation, moved on to the prayers of God's people in hopeful anticipation that He would come, that the end would come, that He would bring justice called out for His justice to finally come, and then we saw the answer of God in divine retribution. And so, there are a lot of questions here. One of the questions might be, how does God's love interact with His judgment? 
And that's something we'll have to talk about actually a lot in the second half of Revelation. With all of this judgment, sometimes we can ask, well, wait a minute, what about the love of God? And I think we see something of an answer here to, to that as well. But I think there's another question that's maybe more immediate in the text, and it's, what's, okay, so what's the response from the world? Right? Like, surely those who dwell upon the earth, those who have made themselves enemies of God in Revelation, will, surely they'll see that putting themselves on the throne and other things on the throne has only brought selfishness and sin and pain and destruction. Like, it's wreaked havoc. It hasn't been good. It hasn't been good for them. It hasn't been good for people around them. Like, they've hurt people through sin. They've hurt others. Them making themselves the center of this world has necessarily caused all kinds of fallout. Surely they'll come to grips with the reality that that their false gods actually torment them day and night. Surely now they'll finally repent, right? Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Here we see, so how, does, how does the world respond? Like silence in heaven for this very serious thing that's about to happen. Prayers of God's people anticipating what God will do. Answers of God in divine retribution. See the response of the world in gospel rejection. Flat out gospel rejection. Why? Well, listen, and, and it's here where we see at least part of our reflection of the love of God in the midst of judgment. Because God longs for people to repent. Peter tells us that one of the reasons why judgment has not come yet, final judgment has not come yet, one of the reasons why God has been patient in delaying his final day of judgment is that there's hope that in his forbearance there might be repentance. In his patience there might be repentance. God longs for people to repent, and yet in the end, even when this is where their false gods lead them, even while being given time and forbearance so that they could have the opportunity to repent, they'd rather have this than bow the knee to God. When Jesus was in Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23, right before he launches into his own teaching that parallels Revelation on what's going to happen in the end, in Matthew 23, he delivers seven woes to those who've hardened their hearts against him, those who are leading people astray. And at the end of those seven woes, there's a lament. And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing, you were unwilling. See your houses being left to you desolate. And then in the next chapter, he talks about the end that will come, the judgment that will come upon those who were, in the end, unwilling despite his desire to gather them. Something similar is happening here. We see these woes upon the earth and God's judgment, God bringing his justice to bear on the earth. And at the conclusion of those woes, we find something of a lament from John. Like, how often would God have gathered them together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? How patient he was delaying judgment in order, in order to give time for repentance, and yet they were not willing. The depth of human depravity runs so deep that even after all of this, those who, desire, who, who do not desire God would rather be tortured by what they worship than worship the one true God. 
It's a striking image. They, they would do anything possible if it means they don't have to repent of something, if it means that they're not guilty of anything. They can't bear the weight of being guilty and needing a Savior. What a truly scary place for any of us to be. And yet this is the very reason, listen to me, that we needed Jesus to come into the world. This is the very thing that makes Advent such good news. Because listen, God entered into human history in the person of Jesus Christ precisely because we couldn't repent without Him. We couldn't. You know, when we say He lived the life that we should have lived, what we mean is He lived the life that we should have lived but we were incapable of living, incapable of true repentance, incapable of actually turning from sin to follow Him. He, when we say He died the death that we deserve to die, we're talking about what we're reading about in Revelation. The, these judgments, Jesus took this punishment and wrath from the Father, this justice of God against sin upon Himself at the cross. See, Jesus isn't just like, God is not up in heaven maniacally tossing out these judgments upon people while Himself being far from it. He actually has already stood in between those judgments and His people and taken them so that His people wouldn't have to. He's experienced them already before the end. He took it upon Himself so that we might have life in Him. Jesus took this punishment and wrath from the Father, this justice of God against sin upon Himself at the cross so that by faith we might have His seal on our foreheads, be known by Him and know Him, be loved by Him and love Him, and be gathered together by Him. And seeing these judgments from a heavenly perspective, from the throne room of God, we can know that God's judgment is tied up in His love. We can see His forbearance and His patience desiring repentance. We can see His Son coming and taking the judgments that we bristle at when we read them. Him actually willingly, though being innocent, though not deserving them, standing and taking those judgments. We can see that His action upon those who reject His name, that action is to bring redemption and recreation to the world He created so that those who bear His seal, those who... Know Him can live for all eternity with Him and He will come again. He desires to make all things new beginning with you right now. If you do not know Jesus, if you're still trusting in yourself or something else to save you, please know a couple of things. Please know, first of all, it's not, it's not a question of whether you worship like Maybe I'll worship, maybe I won't. It's, it's a question of what you worship. Everybody worships something. Everybody has something at the center of their life. Please know that we were created by God to be in perfect and joyful worship of, of Him. Right. So God's people in His place under His rule, we were created to be those who experience human flourishing when things are ordered properly and he is in his rightful place. And there we experience joy. There we experience life. But when we put other things on that throne, when we worship and serve other things, those things destroy us. They torture us. They torment us. They were never meant to bear the burden of being the primary thing in our heart. And know that God has, he's been patient with you. 
He doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. And there is still time to call out to him in faith and believe upon what he's done at the cross to save you. And together as a church, we declare what he's done to one another that we might be called to continual repentance. Not wanting to ever be in a position of being willing to do anything possible, make all kinds of excuses if it means we don't have to repent of something. The table helps us not be in that position because we're declaring back and forth to one another the reality of what Christ has done on the cross for us. So you can receive him by faith today if you haven't and know him for all eternity and join us at the table. But this meal is for believers. And so I invite you, if you have faith in Christ to save you from your sins, to make repentance possible, to live for him in a new way, him in union with you, him going with you. Come and take these elements back to your seats and we will partake of them together.